Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. been an interesting week to say the least but uh we are in nearly a week into the 2020 major league baseball season we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show from milb.com the official podcast of minor league baseball hi everybody i'm tyler ron sam dykstra in new york city hi sam hi tyler how are you doing all right you I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Good. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been good to to watch some games this past week. And uh, one of the things I always get a kick out of, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, is uh, we spend so long in the offseason talking about what a player could be, and now we actually get to see it and compare results to, like, what we've been saying this entire time. I had a funny – I didn't even – it wasn't even an exchange because I didn't respond. But I said, like, Evan White, you know, could be a rookie of the year candidate if he keeps showing power after he hit his first home run and a lot of people were tweeting at me like how can you say he's going to be rookie of the year candidates one week why are you doing this already as if <laughs> we don't cover the sport for a living and like we haven't been covering evan what he's been on this show i think right like he i think we've had him on in the past <laughs> as if we my whole job is not to cover these guys before they make their major league debut right know right, right. what they're capable of no. so now getting to see that capability put out on the field is always exciting. Obviously there have been some, some hiccups uh, in the first week. I don't even want to say hiccups. There have been some uh, pretty big issues with the Miami Marlins, uh, unfortunately, and and so many on that team uh, testing positive for coronavirus. And we wish everybody on that team, nothing but the best and nothing but full health. Hopefully they can get back soon and, and we'll see how things shake out there. Got some decent news today. The Phillies who had played against the Marlins, Uh, and what seems like an ill-advised game over the weekend. They continue to test negative. They're expected to come back over the weekend. Um, So, you know, it's not just pure baseball that's happened so far in the major league season. There have been some issues along the way. But, um, you know, getting to talk about some of these guys that we'll be talking about here in a little bit is is exciting for me. And hopefully these protocols uphold, you know, the standards that are required to keep baseball moving. Um, That's the biggest issue we want everybody to be safe, everybody to be healthy. Uh, and hopefully we can get through a 60 game season and postseason after that. But um, yeah, it, it's good to have baseball back and, and talking about real games again. Yeah, it certainly is. And uh, it is very nice to at least be able to sit down and, and watch a game and just kind of lose yourself at least somewhat in the the rhythms of uh, watching live baseball again, you know, in our in our own time zone and accessible time zones. I get very irritated when people are like, oh, baseball's back. And it's like, well, baseball's been being played in other countries for months now. Um, but for our baseball to be back definitely does carry a, a different weight and a different significance. And, um, you know, there are still those weird moments where, for whatever reason, foul balls make me notice it more than anything. And I don't think I ever realized how often I thought to myself on any foul ball on a telecast, oh, that's cool. Somebody will get to go home with that um, for, for a ball that goes into the stands. And now it's so strange, you know, to see balls clanking around in empty seats and all that. But um, kudos to teams that have, you know, done the cardboard cutout thing or have tried to get creative with uh, with how to make their ballparks feel a little bit less empty. And uh, obviously, yeah, as Sam noted, there are a lot of big things very much going on. But if we try to just focus on the the few hours that you get to sit down and watch a game, those do feel like three pretty good hours these days, and uh, and we all need that 
So uh, we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show. We got a lot coming up for you today. Um, a very interesting story that is uh, taking place in Western New York. The Buffalo Bisons will play host to the Toronto Blue Jays for the 2020 Major League season. Um, and we will catch up with Mike Buchkowski, who is the uh, president of baseball ops uh, for the ownership group that includes the Buffalo Bisons and uh, a very interesting conversation of what it is taking currently to get uh, Salem Field ready to host major league games and uh, the, the machinations that went on behind the scenes to get that whole thing done. Uh, we will also hear in a little while from Gerard Goberto coming up uh, to talk about a story he's got on the site this week about Esteban Quiroz, who is now a, uh, a Tampa Bay Rays prospect and a guy with a very interesting road to being a Tampa Bay Rays prospect. Uh, and there's a lot of baseball stuff to talk about, which is very exciting. And that is what we are going to dive into first. It's not exactly three strikes, but uh, we're getting hopefully close to feeling like we're doing some normal shows again. So we are going to kick it off with a few topics from not minor league baseball, but some players who would have been in minor league baseball this year or maybe next year. Uh, first week nearly in the books in this 2020 season, Sam. Uh, we've seen a lot of Luis Robert. We've seen a lot of guys that we were just talking about top, as top prospects last year, uh, but there have been some standouts who are still very much guys in that prospect game so far, and we'll uh, expect to see more of them as the next few weeks go along and guys start getting those calls. But who from a, a prospect standpoint has stood out most to you through this first week? Yeah, I mean, I think Luis Robert is where we have to start here, as expected. Anybody who listened to our show last week, it was a pretty clean sweep of everybody saying Luis Robert is the favorite to win the AL Rookie of the Year. He showed that pretty quickly for the White Sox. They've been hitting him mostly around the seventh spot in the lineup. And I think Rick Renteria the other day was talking about how that's a good spot for him to be right now. There's a lot of pressure being a rookie um, trying to show that you belong in the majors. Putting him seventh doesn't add to that pressure. It allows the big boppers at the top of the White Sox lineup to, to do their thing. There's not a pr uh, pressure for him to be a run producer necessarily, but he is doing everything that we basically thought he could do. He, he's seven for 19 through his first five games. We're recording here on Wednesday. He's got a homer. He's got a double. Um, the strikeouts are there. He struck out seven times in 20 plate appearances so far. So that's a 35% strikeout rate. That's kind of what we thought would happen is if anything's going to hold him back, it's going to be the hit tool. He's going to have to make adjustments to major league pitching. That's, and that's going to happen all season long. He's going to adjust to major league pitching. They're going to find out more about his swing. They're going to adjust back and back and forth. That battle is going to go. But um, the fact that he's already shown a little bit of power, I expect even more to come uh, here in the coming weeks, see a little bit more of what we saw during summer camp. That's really exciting. There was a funny play the other night in which uh, I think MLB said, like, this is him showing off his range, but he went all the way to right field, essentially to make a catch away from Lurie Garcia. I guess that's a sign of how confident he is defensively. Is You know, the center fielder is essentially the quarterback of the outfield. So they, if they call the ball, they deserve to get it. But him going all the way over there, deciding to take it for himself uh, is a pretty clear sign that he feels confident in the majors and doing all the things that basically we expected out of him. Uh, Brady Singer. We, we didn't get to talk about this much because I think yeah. the news broke after we recorded, but Brady Singer made his major league debut for the Royals uh, last Saturday, gave up two earned runs on three hits and two walks over five innings, struck out seven, which is really good for him. Um, seemed to be mixing it up well, uh, throwing, I think he was around the mid nineties. Uh, you know, Brady Singer forced his way onto that Royals roster with a really strong summer camp it sounds like he had a really strong spring before that carried it through quarantine showed up summer camp if they've had some injuries and and some other issues in that royals rotation so he basically nabbed himself the number two start of the season which is incredible for a rookie uh but that's just the way things lined up in terms of pitching schedules uh but for brady singer to do that well that quickly is certainly important because he's somebody who you know if he gave up, let's say, four runs in five innings, you'd be like, okay, well, it's his first start. That's the way things go sometimes. And guess what? Once the Royals rotation fills out a bit, maybe he gets sent back down to the alternate training site. But if he can keep turning out starts like this, I mean, it's going to make it really difficult for the Royals to justify sending him down. When you say he needs to work on things, well, the things he needs to work on is against major league hitters or any hitters, really. Uh, opposing hitters that he's not going to get at the training site. So Brady Singer getting off to that start was really special. Uh, one I want to just th toss out real quick, Tyler Stevenson, friend of this show. We can say that friend pretty confidently. Friend of the show. Yeah. 
we, we had an interview with him. Uh, Tyler, you remember, we talked to him for what, half an hour after the, the show ended? Yeah, I think the, the interview was a half hour. And I think we talked to him for about 45 minutes after the interview was over. Yeah, just catching up with him. Uh, obviously, when we talked to him, it was like the beginning of quarantine. Everybody was trying to figure out what's going on. We were trading stories back and forth of what do you know about the return plan as a player? What do we know as, as journalists? Um, and Tyler Stevenson had one of my favorite quarantine stories, uh, which Tyler, you wrote about when you wrote about his uh, yeah. call-up. Um, the guy had to take a, a net from like a neighborhood kid. Yeah, his next door neighbor was like, I think yeah. he said he was in eighth grade. And uh, I think he also said that the kid no longer played baseball, but his mom and the kid's mom were friends. And uh, yeah, so he like borrowed a soft toss net from this kid who lives next door or behind him or something like that. Right. So, so Tyler Stevenson gets called up. The Reds actually are pretty stacked at the, the catching spot. I think they were carrying three catchers, but um, so, you know, some roster machinations meant that Tyler Stevenson got to get called up homers in his first at bat. So I guess the net worked. Um, that's just stories that I love. And it, it's an indication of this show and I, I'm not trying to pump our tires too much, but um, you know, when we talk to guys about what does it mean when you are going to make your major league debut, what do you imagine that moment? looking like that's what it's that's what's possible that's what they dream of uh so to see something like that happen to tyler steven was really special he's two for two so far over the walk the guy has not been retired um so that, that's pretty cool too, to start out your career with a 1000 batting average and a 1000 obp obviously that's going to change in time um, but it's kind of neat for for one week just at most te- uh teams have played five games so far but even to see these prospects shine through in this one week is pretty special. Pretty good stuff. And uh, there are more prospects who are on the way, including uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, who are a bit nomadic at the moment. And we'll talk about the Blue Jays coming up here uh, in just a little bit. But a team that made uh, a summons for its top pitching prospect in the right-handed pitcher, Nate Pearson, who's their top overall prospect as well. Uh, Nate Pearson, Sam, of course, starting the season on the taxi squad. He was not in the major league roster, now uh, is a member of the Blue Jays. And kind of interesting, obviously, timing-wise and service time and, and all of that. But we also did see Nate Pearson on a mound not too long ago in a major league ballpark pitched uh, against the Red Sox at Fenway got roughed up a little bit, but now has an opportunity to go out in real games at the major league level and, and try to, to present himself as being possibly the future ace of this staff that everybody expects. Yeah. And, and even that outing at Fenway, I mean, he was still hitting, he was sitting 94, 96, which feels down for him, which is incredible, but he topped out at 98.1 miles per hour. According to stack cast, uh, he struck out the final three batters he faced uh, he threw seven of the game's 10 hardest pitches. So it seemed like a real learning moment for him. He got roughed up early. All four of his earned runs came in the first inning, and three were on a home run by uh, Mitch Moreland, obviously a, an established major leaguer. So that, that felt like Nate Pearson getting settled and, and learning things about major league hitters and learning about himself in a major league park. Uh, now, by the time you guys hear this, he will have already made his debut. He's going up against the World Series Washington or World Series champion Washington Nationals and going up against Max Scherzer, future Hall of Famer. So best of luck to you, Nate Pearson. Uh, but his stuff is major league ready. We knew that coming into the year. The Jays knew that coming into the year. They added him to the taxi squad uh, before he was even technically on the 40-man roster, I think. So they were carrying him around just in case of emergencies. Thankfully, none of those emergencies came in the first week. Uh, they announced early th- or this week that uh, Ryu, their opening day starter, was going to be pushed back a day because he threw so many pitches uh, on opening day. That allowed an opening for Nate Pearson. Uh, Tyler, you mentioned service time concerns. It is a little bit of a coincidence that, oh, hey, we happen to have a rotation spot open one week after the season starts and exactly at yeah. the time in which we can delay your free agency a year. It's the system, the way it works, uh, the Jays in, in a part, at a point right now where they're trying to keep all their young talent together. Obviously, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is already up. Bo Bichette's already up. Kevin Vigio's already up. It, Nate Pearson fits quite comfortably into that core. Uh, he's going to show a triple-digit heater. Would not be surprised if he hits triple digits in his debut against the Nats, uh, probably because there's going to be a little bit of adrenaline going there as well. Uh, but he has a plus slider. His changeup is – really improved. He loves talking about the improvements 
to his changeup. Those three pitches are what solidify him as a starter. When he was drafted in the first round a couple of years ago, coming out of junior college, a lot of people thought, okay, the heat is there. He's probably going to be a reliever, uh, but he's shown much better than that. His control is especially good for his size and his stuff. Uh, he's probably the second best starter right now in, in the Jays rotation behind Ryu. Um, but give it a couple of weeks. Uh, would not be surprised if, if he surpasses Ryu as the best starter because the stuff is there right now. And uh, there will be more of those guys getting called up uh, in coming days and weeks and not just for service time considerations, but obviously uh, being in the, the world that we currently inhabit, there are a lot of variables for rosters and how they're being constructed. And there are still, I think it's very important to point out, baseball injuries. Uh, I know watching the uh, the Rockies and Rangers uh, over the weekend, Corey Kluber goes out, throws the, the first inning of a game and then gets pulled and immediately Twitter erupts with, well, what if the Rangers got a positive test back on Corey Kluber? What is the deal with this? And then of course we found out later that it was a shoulder strain. He's going to be shut down for four weeks. Um, so I think that is something important to keep in mind. And obviously we're living in a very uh, difficult and, and stressful and kind of scary time, but do allow for the possibility that guys are still going to get hurt just from performing their duties as athletes uh, and, and try to keep that in mind. Cause I know we're all scared of a, a lot of different things, but I think that's something important. Um, so with all that being said, we will see more top prospects coming up uh, probably in very short order. Sam, who do you see as kind of the next uh, maybe few that might be on the, the docket for teams to, to summon the big leagues? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Gavin Lux is the one we're all waiting for. Um, we talked about this last week when we were talking about rookie of the year, candidates is it was a bit of a shock that the Dodgers sent him down he's still not up yet uh maybe you know they said he needed time to work on his swing because he showed up late to camp I get that if service time is the issue then we're going to be waiting even longer on him um and I know Enrique Hernandez got off to a especially good start at second base in their opener which allows him to kind of stiff arm Gavin Lux and keep him away for a little bit longer uh but Gavin Lux is the one that that looms over all of this uh, but we didn't talk about this last week either because it literally broke on opening day before we uh, recorded the episode. But the expansion of the postseason is going to have some ramifications yeah. here. Uh, for I'm sure most of you know out there, but we're going from five uh, postseason teams per league to now eight. Uh, the division winners and the second place finishers in each division all automatically make the playoffs. And then there's two wild card teams in each league. So we're going to have eight teams in each league, 16 total making the playoffs that opens up the possibilities. Uh, it's fascinating to me that news broke of that hours before first pitch of opening day, uh, because you would think teams would build their rosters differently if they thought they had uh, a chance to make an expanded playoffs, but neither here nor there, it, it opens up a window for the Los Angeles angels and Joe Adele. Uh, I would like to see him up pretty quick right now as things stand, you know, it's, it's obviously very early, but they're two and three. They're only a game behind the Astros and A's bring up somebody like Joe Adele could keep you in that hunt. And for them, maybe allow them to move past the A's. Maybe it gets them one of those two wild card spots. I mean, as long as they have Mike Trout, they have a chance to make one of the spots in an expanded AL playoffs. Um, so Joe Adele, I think enters that conversation. The White Sox, for as good as Luis Robert has been, they've been off to a little bit of a rough start. They're one and four. Nick Madrigal, looms large there as well uh, as a potential solution at second base. They also have Andrew Vaughn. I think Madrigal comes up first um, just because second base was a question mark for them. He's got the hit tool. I know he had some struggles in the spring, but that hit tool is not going anywhere. He's going to spray the ball all over the park. Dylan Carlson uh, was probably one of the three best outfielders for the Cardinals anyways during summer camp. He seemed to be disappointed that he was sent back to the alternate site at Springfield. Would not be surprised to see him up within the next week or two. Uh, for the St. Louis Cardinals, who are two and two as we sit here right now. So those are a couple of some of the names I'm looking out at. Uh, the Atlanta Braves, we know they have pretty good pitching at the upper levels. Tucker Davidson, not a top 100 prospect, but uh, after Mike Fultinowitz had some stumbles here uh, for the Braves, and he's going to be DFA, that opens up a rotation spot. We know they have other rotation spots open because Cole Hamels is out for a while. Felix Hernandez opted out. Uh, so Tucker Davidson could take – one of those spots, Ian Anderson is also there uh, after he ended last year at AAA. Uh, so keep an eye on that Braves rotation to see if one of these young arms get a chance. But um, 
you know, with, with so many expanded postseason spots, these races are going to be competitive early. We only have about 55 games left in the season. Uh, this is when we would call it the, think about things going into the final stretch run. We'd be talking about the trade deadline at any other time right now. Adding these prospects now is essentially adding talent through a trade, but internally. Um, so I, I think we're going to see prospects here pretty quick uh, now that that one week has passed. And no matter when they come up now, uh, their service time is delayed enough to get that extra free agent year. Uh, that has to be considered part of the equation too. Well, one of the ballparks in the minor leagues that has seen some of the top talent in the sport uh, cross its lines over the last few seasons is Salem Field, the home of the Buffalo Bisons in Buffalo, New York. And this year, uh, there will be baseball at Salem Field. It'll just be a little bit different kind of baseball as the Buffalo Bisons prepare to play host to the Toronto Blue Jays for the 2020 regular season in Toronto's home games. And uh, Mike Bushkowski, who is one of the guys behind the scenes making it happen in Buffalo, joins the show to talk about it next. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide is here from life's first pitch to the seventh inning stretch. Whether you're looking for protection for your house, car, pet, or small business, Nationwide offers a wide range of products and support to make sure you're getting the right coverage for your specific needs. Visit Nationwide.com for more information on how we can help take care of what you have today and plan for what's ahead. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, Columbus, Ohio. Well, if you could put us all in a time machine and uh, send us back to the end of July of 2019 and explain that we would be bringing on uh, a member of the Buffalo Bisons front office to talk about how they'd be hosting the Toronto Blue Jays for the entirety of the 2020 Major League Baseball season, I think we would all be quite confused. Uh, But that's where we are in 2020, and uh, we welcome in uh, a guy who is in charge of leading one of the most interesting transition prospects uh, in baseball right now, and that is the president of Rich Baseball. Baseball operations, Mike Butchkowski, who comes to us from the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, Mike, a very interesting week and couple of weeks and six months or so. How are you doing right now? Let's start there. <laughs> we're we're doing okay. We're uh, taking it day by day, which I guess is what the whole world has really had to do since uh, the COVID. You know, since it started, everything that you think is an absolute is now in question, and uh, you put plans in place and. You have to be ready to, to change them. Contingencies, you know, I, I told someone it used to be you had, you know, you had plans A, B, and C. There's been times where we've been down, down to plans A. And down, it was not believable enough. You know, there's no way that that could happen, and here we are. This this season uh, has obviously been so weird for anyone and everyone, uh, and the, the roller coaster for you guys just over the month of July – uh, I would imagine is not even something that's very easy to put into words. But obviously we get the the news early on in the month there, there will not be a minor league season. Um, but then all of a sudden there are conversations that start about what's the Blue Jays situation going to be. It looked for a moment like they'd be able to go to Toronto. Uh, the Canadian government said no. So the, the Blue Jays are somewhat nomadic in searching for a home. And you guys being very close, being an affiliate, um, when did this conversation start of, okay, maybe Salem Field is an option for us? You know, I, I don't I don't remember the exact date, but I think it started. Uh, and 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 one other thing to note: while all this was going on, we were having ongoing discussions with the Blue Jays to be the hosts for their taxi squad, and that was, you know, that was going to be the plan if they played in Toronto. Um, and so we had had discussions about preparing our ballpark for for that possibility. But you know, I think when the when the COVID cases in Florida really spiked, and and Florida then you know became unfortunately a hot spot that's when we started to have more serious conversations about the possibility of playing in, in Buffalo at, at, at Salem field. Um, you know, but it was still a backup plan. You know, it was still the Jays at the time were, were really hoping to get uh, permission from the Canadian government to play. But, you know, that's probably the first, uh, the first time that, uh, that I remember starting to do parallel plans. Okay. Let's talk about taxi squad. And then, Let's get a different group of people together to begin talking about the possibility of MLB games. And when that conversation switches going from taxi squad to MLB, um, 
you know, how aggressive do you guys get with that? I mean, you guys have a working relationship with Toronto. Like Tyler said, you guys are an affiliate. You guys have worked together for a while. Um, but how aggressively were you guys pushing it from your side to say, hey, please consider us uh, for this opportunity if Toronto doesn't work out? Yeah, I think we, you know, we were, we, we wanted to be an option. You know, the, the, the excitement that this has generated in our community is even beyond what I thought it was going to generate. Um, you know, and we really wanted to be a resource for the Blue Jays. We, we understood, you know, we understood that the players preferred to play in a major league ballpark. Why wouldn't you, if you're a major league baseball player, why wouldn't you want to play your games in a major league ballpark? And we understood all of that. And what we wanted to just make sure is that we were as ready as possible. Should those options not be available to the Blue Jays that they would have, um, you know, something uh, in Buffalo, uh, be able to, to, to work out this plan. And as you said, we, we've been, you know, an affiliate of the, of the uh, Blue Jays since 2012. Personally, I go back to 1995 that I've, that's how long I've known Mark Shapiro. I was the general manager of the Bisons. Mark was the farm director of the Cleveland Indians. And that's when we first became affiliated and have met Ross Atkins, you know, not, not long after that. So, Personally, uh, you know, we've had a relationship with with those two guys for for decades. But um, and so I think there there was a comfort level there that you know I we obviously know what they're about and and he knows what the Bisons and the Rich family are are about in Buffalo, the, the family that owns the team and and so we just wanted it to be an option for him. And one of the big storylines with this that everybody has been following is that in order for this to happen, in order for Salem Field to be major league quality, is that there have been improvements. I'm sure they're ongoing now. Um, one of the big ones is to the lights and making sure those are up to major league code, essentially. What other improvements are you guys working on? What What is the work that's ongoing and what stage are you guys at to be at what is going to be Buffalo's opening day on August 11th? It is just, uh, it's a, it's amazing what, what is already taking place um, in our ballpark. And I think, guys, you know, one of the things that was unfortunate, I think, for Buffalo and for, for Salem Field, you know, the narrative first, the story was that, you know, the, the, the players wanted to play in a, in a major league park and that Salem Field was not up to major league standard. And then as the story kind of evolved nationally, not, not locally, nationally, the narrative kind of became that, you know, Salem Field is not up to standard. And unfortunately, that's kind of what happened. Salem Field is above standard for a AAA ballpark. And as I said, you know, here in talking to, to during our press conference, there's not a single minor league ballpark in the country that is up to major league standard. You do not build minor league ballparks to major league standard. There's a, there's a huge difference. Even the, the newest and brightest new minor league ballparks are not a major league park. So, so of course there needed to be things that, that, uh, that needed to be done to, to Salem field. The lights probably got the most, uh, talk, um, you know, and, 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 uh, the working out a plan on what they need to do to not only bring it up to, to, for what the players need, but for, for telecast, right? Because it's obviously a huge part of the business of, of major league baseball, being able to bring these games to their fans on, on TV. So uh, that's just one of, of, of a million things, you know, a minor league or triple a ballpark clubhouse is not of major league standard to begin with. But now when you add in the added uh, measures of needing to do it safely under the new protocols uh, of COVID and players being able to be safely distanced, whether it is, in their clubhouse, whether it's in the trainer's room or the weight room, that just added extra pressure to the capacity of, of the rooms that we have in place. And so a lot of what is happening has already started and, and has begun is how do we reimagine Salem Field, all of the spaces in Salem Field, not just looking at the clubhouse, but looking at the rooms adjacent to the clubhouse, the uh, uh, where our batting cages are currently located and, and uh, we're taking those out because they're right near the clubhouse, and that's going to be part of the expanded clubhouse. The batting cages are going to go up into the concourse. They're going to build, you know, new temporary batting cages in the clubhouse. Uh, weight rooms, training rooms. We're going to make use of some areas, but then again, we're going to use the footprint, the total footprint of the ballpark, to be able to create safe uh, spaces for not just the home team, obviously, but for for the teams that are coming in, we're, we're, they're they're going to be utilizing um, the area beyond our f home run fence and right center field is kind of where our big 
picnic area is and parking lot, and that's where the visiting clubhouse is going to be constructed. So it has been an, an incredible process, a, a fun process in a lot of ways to think about these possibilities. And, and now, you know, as of just the last couple of days, we're actually starting to see actual, you know, work being done to, to reach those goals. Mike, a few things about the kind of the emotions of this moment. Um, you mentioned how much excitement this has generated in Buffalo, but the difficult thing is all of, of these Bisons fans and, and Jays fans are going to be so excited about games that they can't go see because that's the world that we live in in 2020. And, oh, my city's getting a major league team and I can't go see them. Um, that, that's got to be tough, uh, not only obviously from a fan standpoint, but for you guys to try to make this you know feel uh, accessible and as though uh, these fans are still part of that. That, um, what kind of outreach or things can you do to to engage uh, your local community while not being allowed to have them at these games when the Jays arrive next week? Yeah, and that, that's obviously the challenge. And, and you're right. I mean, to, to to have fans at one of these games, that you know, that would be unbelievable. But the reason we're in the position we are to be able to to work with the Jays is because you know, fans would, would are not allowed in, you know, in the ballparks, but yeah, we're, we've, you know, on our social media channels, we have tried to, to stay connected with people by giving them updates um, as, uh, as the uh, construction and the, the changes start to pl- take place in the ballpark, we're going to figure out a way to kind of give people some sneak peeks without physically being there to kind of show them the, the unbelievable lengths that the blue Jays and, and, and major league baseball are going to, to uh, make sure that Salem field is, is ready for these games. And uh, uh, like I said, most of it has really gotten underway in earnest the last couple of days. We actually did have the Blue Jays taxi squad here for about three days um, while all of this was being finalized. Those guys were here working out, so we couldn't really get into some of those areas. But now that they've moved on to Rochester to, to do the taxi squad, it is happening in earnest. Today, the, the, the lights are actually... Uh, all of the bulbs that are in our, our existing lights, they're, they're going to start that project today. So people driving by at least will we'll probably start to see some activity and cranes and, and different things going on. Mike, you've been with this team for, for so long. I know you started with them uh, back, I believe, it, at War Memorial Stadium, correct? I did. 19, yeah, middle of the 1987 season, which, yeah, that was the last year at that ballpark. And then, yeah, continued on as it was then called Pilot Field when it, when it opened in 1988. And one of the the really fascinating things about not only that facility but the the Bison's history is for a while, especially after what was then Pilot Field was built, it was built with, and we hear this about Charlotte sometimes nowadays, it was kind of built with an eye of, yeah, it's a AAA ballpark right now, but it could be a major league facility. And I know there was capacity uh, for a little while of over 20,000, which is cavernous for a a minor league facility. And um, there were discussions in the early 90s when when Denver and Miami ended up getting awarded expansion franchises that Buffalo may be one of those uh, instead. And for now being this far removed from that and getting a major league team there, yes, it's under a weird circumstance, and and yes, uh, it's not going to be a permanent thing, but does it feel like some sort of cosmic justice that you're going to get to to host Major League Ball on a, a regular basis if Salem Field. It's a it seems like a, a cool thing if happening in a very unfortunate circumstance. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, I may steal your where I haven't described it yet as cosmic justice, but that's a great <laughs> uh, a great description of it. it it's uh, yeah, I was here. You know, we our organization, our owners, Bob and Mindy Rich. That you know, they're the same owners. They've owned the Bisons for almost 40 years. That they were the group that was trying to bring Major League Baseball to Buffalo. You know, I, I remember those days still like they were yesterday. We spent about six years of our lives doing, you know, giving our heart and soul and trying to get one of those franchises and for for various reasons, probably part of a whole other discussion. Denver and, and Miami were the teams, you know, that were chosen and it was it was heartbreaking for us. It was the it was the end of a of a of a period of time. Uh, and then as baseball evolved even further and the economics of the game continued to change, it became apparent, I think, that that cities the size of Buffalo were probably not going to be in the mix in the future for Major League Baseball. And, you know, there, there are cities in the, in the major leagues that are twice the size of Buffalo that are considered small markets in the big leagues. So how can a city that is even smaller than the smallest, you know, compete under under the economics of the game? So, yeah, we really turned our attention to how can we 
continue to make now Salem Field the best possible place it can be for AAA baseball? How can we still stay a huge part of our community in Buffalo? You guys know we have the Bills and the Sabres, and, and we fit in perfectly when, you know, when the Sabres are finished and the Bills haven't started yet. It's everything you know about minor league baseball. It's affordable, you know, family and sports entertainment, and it's a great experience. And you get to see every once in a while, you get to see a star like Vlad Jr. come through here, or you get to see a, a rehab player come to, to play here, whether it's our player or visiting player. And so that's been our focus ever since then. And, you know, you didn't really give it too much thought. And then, man, all of a sudden it happens, and – you know, I didn't allow myself to personally think about it much. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to continue to just focus on what what do we do? What do we do next? How do we, you know, how do we partner? How do we get all this done? And I told somebody during our press conference when we were announcing this, I had made an opening statement. Our mayor, Byron Brown, was with us. I turned it over to him, and, and I stepped back, and it hit me exactly then. And I started – I couldn't – it was hard for me to focus for him, and I started thinking about all the people that – that tried so hard. And I thought about Bob and Mindy rich and, and guys like Pete Weber, who you guys may know as our announcer and, and just the former associates in our community and a mayor who got our ballpark built, Jimmy Griffin who passed away. And I thought about him. I thought about people who aren't with us anymore and thinking, man, what are they thinking? And uh, the ma- I, I kind of lost focus on what the mayor was saying. He was finished and, <laughs> walked back up to the podium I had to compose myself for a minute to get back on back on track and back on the present but uh but now I've agreed that I'm not going to do that again I'm going to continue to focus on what needs to be done and when this is all over and and hopefully the Blue Jays are World Series champions I can I can look back at those times again (laughs) from the standpoint of having uh an assignment right now uh for lack of a better term this is such a, a weird and you know mostly awful year uh and around the minor league community it's been a really difficult month with the announcement that the season wasn't going to be coming back and uh it's got to be I, I would think probably pretty bittersweet when you look at you know so many other GMs and and people in your position who are now looking at okay how do we get ourselves over the line to 2021 uh, for you guys, you get put into a position now where you have something to tackle. You get a, a daily operation, um, and I know the you know the crossover between your staff and what's going to happen with the Blue Jays might not be a hundred percent like like people some uh, might think for a, a circumstance like this. But how much does it feel like you got kind of tossed a, a lifeline with something uh, that occupies you now through September um, versus you know if this is a circumstance where you're just sitting around trying to figure out all right season's canceled how do we get to next opening day? Uh, in the in the best way yeah and that's exactly how we feel we do feel fortunate you know we don't have to look very far we we operate and own two other minor league teams northwest arkansas naturals and and uh, the double a texas league for the for the royals and then you know an even more complicated situation we own the west virginia black bears or the new york penn league for the pittsburgh pirates right. and you guys know about we don't know what the future is going to hold there uh so uh, yeah i I talk to our guys there all the time and they're exactly in that place. And, and then you're right. The people that I've known a lot of them known for 25 or 30 years that are operating other teams and the position that they're in, which is just awful. And, and, uh, and some of the most amazing messages I think that I've gotten have been from those guys. And I know the situation they're in and the heartfelt, uh, genuine feeling good for us and asking what they can do and can we come and help and, uh, you know, whatever the offers are is, is really, I think, been amazing and I think highlights the, what really a, a, what minor league baseball and what being part of that is is all about. And, you know, speaking of Salem Field being on a big stage now, uh, so many fans are going to be able to watch Salem Field on MLB TV, on ESPN, potentially on Fox, what, what have you. When people see the that stadium put on the big stage like that, what should they look for? What, what is, well, you know, what specialties about Salem field are going to be put on display now? I think what's really fun to look at still, even for us, and just to kind of give a little bit of the history of, of, of the ballpark, it, it opened in 1988. It was designed by HOK, which is now populous. The, the same two guys, Joe Spear and Ben Barnard, who were the the chief architects for our ballpark. Their very next project was New Comiskey in Chicago. And then they went to Camden Yards and designed that. And then, you know, the list goes on and on and on of of major league ballparks that that, uh, were built uh, after ours. And 
in design, many of them by the, the, the same group that designed ours. So sometimes you'll see a center field shot and you'll say, boy, that, that, the way that's constructed there behind home plate looks, looks like some other ballparks, you know, that, that I've seen on, you know, that I've seen on TV. And it's one of the things we're, we're really proud of, you know, this ballpark opened when not too many, there weren't too many new uh, uh, minor league, let alone major league uh, um, ballparks being built. When it opened, every team that was in the market to build a new ballpark came and saw our ballpark, whether it was huh. the, you know, the Giants or the Reds or the, you know, the Orioles or the uh, White, whoever it was. They all sent representatives here to see it. Obviously, they 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 took what they learned here and improved it, but it was really the first major minor league project that was a retro ballpark. It was it was built to look as if it was an old-time ballpark, but at the time had the, the new sight lines and the amenities being close to the field and, and all the our concessions at the time were way beyond what most minor league ballparks were offering. And and uh, it really was a catalyst for the boom of, of stadiums. People saw the success. We drew over a million fans the first six years and, and even outdrew some major league teams back then. And and I think it was a people were looking saying, boy, look what they did in Buffalo. We could do that in our community too. And whether that was the big leagues or whether it was the minor leagues, I think I think we were, uh, you know, we were kind of held up as the example of what could be done across the country. All right, Mike. Well, we, we can't have you on without asking this question. Tyler's a much bigger hat head than I am or, or, you know, Jersey fiend, but I do want to ask this now that some of these guys are back. You mentioned Vlad jr. Is back. Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, all these guys, Nate Pearson, just getting called up today. Um, all these guys have come through Buffalo at some point. Has there been any jockeying to get one game, maybe just one game where they wear Bison's jerseys again? We, we have not, we have not, uh, we have not <laughs> talked really about that. I love the idea, obviously, you know, but we, we we're, we need to really be respectful to the Blue Jays. They are the Toronto Blue Jays. They will always be the Toronto Blue Jays. They will always be Toronto's team. Buffalo is just their their temporary home. But hopefully there's maybe some fun things we can do. Probably not wearing the Bison's jerseys, but hopefully we can get creative with the Blue Jays on some maybe some commemorative uh, items that people can get their hands on. That is pretty awesome. And uh, for those who do not know, not the first time that Buffalo will be hosting a, uh, a major league franchise. The Bisons were actually members of the National League back in the 1870s and 1880s. They had a team in the very short-lived Players League in 1890. Uh, they had a team in the also short-lived Federal League uh, that wrapped up in 1915. So it's not the first time that Buffalo will be hosting major league regular season ball. Uh, it'll just be the first time in a long time. And uh, it's going to be fun and weird and uh, exciting and very different but uh obviously a, a situation that we're excited for for you guys and uh mike butchkowski who is the president of rich baseball operations and uh, and a guy who bleeds buffalo baseball mike best of luck with all this we're all cheering you on and uh enjoy every minute of it as much as possible and i'm sure by october uh it'll be time for a, a very well-deserved nap <laughs> i think you're right thank you guys <laughs> appreciate you having me on There are a lot of different ways to make it from the amateur ranks into professional baseball and eventually to the major leagues or at least the doorstep of the major leagues. And uh, this week we're going to hear about one of those interesting stories with our minor league writer spotlight for uh, episode 269 of the show before the show, Gerard Gilberto, who joins us. Gerard, what's going on, man? How are you? How's it going, boys? We are good. Um, you got a great story that is up on the site uh, right now. We're recording this on Wednesday. It went up on Monday, so go find it, especially if you are a, uh, a fan of the Rays or the Padres or the Red Sox or a couple of teams in the in the AAA-level Mexican League, and uh, we'll break that all down to uh, give you the reasons behind all of those teams here in a moment. But uh, it's about Esteban Quiroz, who is a 28-year-old infield prospect now in the Tampa Bay Rays organization uh, who is 28 which is sort of old for a prospect and yet is only in his third season in the affiliated minor leagues because he hails from Ciudad Obregon in the Mexican state of Sonora, played a long time in the AAA Mexican League, was not signed by a professional team uh, in the U.S. until 2018. This is a really interesting story that touches on a lot of uh, the requirements and the the difficult um, transactions sometimes that it takes for guys to make it out of Mexico and into MLB-affiliated ranks. Kind of give us the the general breakdown of Esteban's story, Gerard. Yeah, so uh, this is a, a, a dude who... 
Um, what he actually likes to talk about a lot is he's undersized. He's listed here 5'6", 199. Um, he looks a little thicker in picture. He it, it, it looks like a very good athlete. Um, but he, it's sort of, you know, odds are stacked against him here. He's a guy uh, first played in the league that uh, has a lot of different rules. It's not, you know, people tend to look at Mexico the way, you know, because it's down south and, you know, not in the Caribbean, but people look at it like a Caribbean country where, you think, okay, July 2nd, I could sign a guy from Mexico and, and move along, you know, with my day. But when they're signed to a Mexican league team, it's a little different. It's more like the, uh, the Japanese or the Cuban leagues where you, you kind of, the MLB team has to negotiate with the Mexican team to, uh, for a release fee, then the player can get there. Um, and that's the route that, that Esteban took. It's not, he's not the first to do it. Obviously we've seen, uh, plenty of, of guys take this route, but, um, plenty of guys are not prospects at 28. Um, so first place he went to from uh, actually got traded from his, the Mexican league team that he was on for about six years uh, from Quintana Roo to Yucatan, which right next to each other. Um, then with Yucatan, he signed with the Red Sox from Yucatan. He signed with the Red Sox, Red Sox uh, plays in Portland, carrying the cover off the ball in double a right away. Sports hernia, unfortunately, limits him to about 32 games uh, between rehabbing and, and playing back in Portland. Next season, gets traded to the Padres. Plays a full year of AAA with the Padres. This offseason, he's the player to be named later in the Tommy Pham trade. And now he's with the Rays. And uh, he's very he's very razy, if that makes sense. He's the type of guy that you look at him and say, oh, okay, I understand why the, the Rays like him. That's the type of dude that the Rays like. And that's where he is now, and and he's actually a ranked prospect in a in a very good system. Um, you know, it's it's he was coming from a very good system, obviously in San Diego, but now he he sneaks in at number thirty here with the Rays, and I don't know what's going to happen with uh, uh, Nabisco or or whatever happens when those rankings come out. But as of right now, he's on their uh, the, he's in the player pool, is at the alternate site in Port Charlotte, and he's a ranked raised prospect, which is a good place to be in this game. Yeah. And going from the Padre system, which obviously I think we've called the number two system in baseball to number <laughs> one system in baseball. Obviously there are some uh, pretty good minor league evaluators that value him highly, but wh- why ha- has he been able to make so many moves? I mean, when you see somebody like this move from team to team to team, Part of you wonders, okay, why are they trading him? But also, why are teams willing to acquire him? So, what makes Esteban Quiroz such an interesting prospect? And you know, why is he knocking on the door uh, to St. Pete and Tampa Bay at, at this stage of his career? Like you said, in what would be his age twenty-eight season? Right. So, um, as a player, he's he's pretty much not a he's a pure second baseman. He, he can play a little bit of the third, even played some outfield and some shortstop in, in, in Mexico, but he's pretty much the second baseman uh, through and through, and he's uh, profiles a little bit more bad over glove, but his on-base percentage has been fantastic. He, he consistently puts up the 400 or, or higher on-base in you know, the Mexican League and, and in uh, triple-double-A. Um, so he's, he, he's really good at getting on-base. Uh, talking to a guy named Marcus Cuellar, who was the signing scout from the Red Sox, um, when you're kind of limited the way that uh, scouts are to who you can sign, you kind of follow box scores to see who's worth uh, taking a look at. And he said that he noticed when right around 2014, 2015, Kuro's strikeouts and walks just flipped. And then with the walks going up and the strikeouts going down, he actually started hitting for a little more, not power like home run power, but started finding gaps a little bit more. Slugging percentage also went up. So this is a guy who, he's got a great bat. I, even me, when I, you know, we, we follow Arizona Fall League, places like this, which where he, uh, Kuros played in 2018 after he missed all that time with Boston. He's just a guy who, you can't keep his name out of a box. Like it, it just jumps off a box score every so often. And you always look in, this name just keeps jumping out at you. And um, yeah, that, that's sort of his profile as a player. I think... Not, I think. What I was told from Kevin Ibach, who's the uh, baseball operations guy in Tampa, um, and I know Tampa gets a lot of, call it flack or call it, you know, whatever it is for 
being a little bit more modern and, and relying on their, um, you know, these advanced analytics, but uh, they found Esteban the old school way. They had eyes on him in Fort Myers, his first spring training when he was with the Red Sox, and they scouted they scouted him a lot. They, the way he describes it is we have a history with the player. We knew who this player was. We've seen him a thousand times. We like him. Now, because of the pandemic, uh, Ibach couldn't go out to Peoria and, you know, get a final look at him. But he knew him. There was an established history with the Rays and, and Esteban, and when he had his little pool of players to pick from for the player to be named later in the fam trade, Jarosa is the name you know. It's the name you like. And that's how he actually ended up being one of the few moves while rosters were frozen, uh, that he came from San Diego to Tampa. Um, and, and that's, like you said, he, he gets traded a lot. And in his head, it's like you, you feel, what he told me was that he feels, you know, am I not good at this? Why don't they want me? But it's quite the opposite. It's I know this guy. I like this guy. We can get this guy. Let's bring him in. And along those lines, in your discussions with both Kuros, you, you talk to him through a, through an interpreter, talking to people around him. Um, what has this route done for his career? Obviously, being this close to the majors is is great, and uh, you know it's gotten him on the doorstep, being part of the player pool and, and performing well at AAA. But starting out the career in Mexico, immediately jumping to AA when he moved to affiliated ball. You know, what has this career path allowed for him to, to grow as a baseball player and become a very close uh, or very nearby major leaguer? Yeah, um, obviously it's it's good to be established anywhere. Uh, you, you you jump to the mine that level of the minors in Double A Portland, and Marcus told me Marcus Cuellar from the Red Sox told me he wouldn't have been surprised if if he had been able to play a whole season if he's on the Red Sox in the big league team. At the very least, Pawtucket, but it, if he's with the big league team come the end of the season in 2018. Um, obviously, he's 26 at that point. So, you know, it's a little different um, being your first year stateside. But th- these guys, they, they find their own way. You know, you, you hit that well, you're going to get rewarded for it. And being a little bit older, you're not, you know, there's just not as much of a focus on development as there is, um, you know, rewarding success right off the bat now one of the things that uh is mentioned in the story here and and uh pretty much everybody all all four people i spoke to sort of had the same opinion of it is that in mexican leagues it's it's more of like a nine to five being a ball player where so when esteban came here you know uh going to the training room as often as possible watching film uh you know working at like basically the 24 seven ball player lifestyle doesn't really, isn't really something they do down there. So that was his big adjustment. He took to that very well, obviously had some success. So now he's sort of ahead of the curve there. Another interesting element of his career, Gerard, he's had uh, so much experience on big stages. I mean, even before signing with, uh, the Red Sox, he had played in the world baseball classic in 2017. Uh, I know he was on the, the Mexico team that qualified for the Olympics, um, playing in the Premier 12 tournament last year, so he'll be an Olympian by next year if uh, if he stays on that roster. And in those uh, outlets, as well as playing uh, in the Mexican League, he gains a, a type of experience and exposure that are different than playing on the minor league side. And yet... He's still such a new minor leaguer that one of the things he pointed out that was really interesting is he's, in effect, on his first or second minor league team, and guys are coming to him as though he's the veteran. I mean, he's 26, 27, 28, and he's in Portland or El Paso, and he's got younger players coming up to him being like, hey, in this situation, what have you seen? What do I do? Uh, that seemed like something that he really embraced, but that cannot be an easy thing for a guy who's just been signed. What was the impression that you got from him when it came to kind of being a leader in a very untraditional leadership track? Yeah, he seemed to enjoy it based on conversations with, with him. And, and when you, you asked him about the adjustments, um, a, a lot of what he talked about was, was a little bit more cultural outside the ballpark. Um, obviously, the two cities he played in, Portland and El Paso, same country, but couldn't be more different. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, obviously, he's a little bit more comfortable in El Paso, a lot more Spanish uh, speakers down there. But he said it, it was still the same. It, he, playing with a lot of a lot of prospects. You know, he had uh, Luis Urias in uh, 
El Paso right next to him too. Those guys look to you for help. And, and if you know, you know, you, you share it. He said to him, it's a, it's a good way for himself to get better. It's a good way for everybody to get better. Um, the way it was interpreted to me was that it's sportsmanship to him. Um, so that was, that was an interesting thing. We, and uh, it, it is, it is funny hearing things in two different languages. Cause you know, you learn in Spanish growing up, you hear Vieo and you think a cartoon of a little old man. And so I'm like, I kind of want to get it across. Like, not calling you old. I'm your age. Like you're not old. <laughs> we're, we're we're all beyond prospects. Dad is here, but you're not old. Um, but you know, he is the elder statesman when he walks into the clubhouse of, you know, teenagers and, and early twenty year olds in Double A. And obviously, Triple A is a little different because you have a, a lot more back and forth with the major league club. But yeah, it, it, it's something he embraced, and it's something he, he's gonna. He's in a great position to do it now. He's got Wander Franco and, and Vidal Bruon with him on the uh, the the alternate side there. Those are two Spanish speakers, two uh, infielders, two of the best prospects in the game. And if they can learn from a guy like Esteban Carroz, who has been there for a long time, you know, not there meaning the majors, but he's, he's played a hell of a lot of baseball in the last decade. Uh, that that makes everybody better, including the game's top prospect. Well, we'll end on this kind of similar to what you were just mentioning there with Franco there with Bruhan there at the alternate site in Port Charlotte, uh, Willie Adamas, Brandon Lau there on the major league team, Joey Wendell as well, getting infield time and Mike Brousseau. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of wiggle room for Kiros to get in here. How do you evaluate his chances now that he's in the Tampa Bay system? I don't think anybody in baseball knows what the Rays are thinking. I think the Rays uh, that, that, smarter than everybody and you know what it, it can surprise us and like i said this is a guy who who's kind of had success everywhere he's gone um so he can kind of force his way onto the roster uh, i i think wanda franco and Bruin being a little young they might want to hold off on that but weird things happen then and especially in tampa where they, they like turning rosters over and, and stuff like that but uh, i you know you need injuries happen See what happens with, with things like the Marlins, God forbid. Um, you know, but it, it's not just COVID. You guys roll an ankle, again, God forbid, or whatever it may be, and he's there for a reason. I think everybody in these player pools are there, you know, because they, they got a shot at helping, especially the guy with the full year of AAA experience uh, like Esteban. He is a fun story, Esteban Quiroz, and you can find this story from Gerard up on the site at MILB.com right now. Gerard Gilberto, you can find on Twitter at Gerard underscore Gilberto. And uh, Gerard, this is great stuff, man. It's one of those stories that we were talking before we started recording. I think so many people, like you said uh, in your first answer, so many people I think look at players who come out of Mexico and think, well, I would imagine that's probably a very similar track as to coming out of Venezuela or the DR or wherever. And it's just so different. And this is uh, a really cool piece that sheds a light on uh, a lot of that process. So you can go find that on the site right now. And uh, Gerard, thanks, man. We'll do it again soon. Of course. Always, always enjoy this. Thanks, boys. Train like the baseball pros. You could win a personal one-on-one virtual workout with Detroit Tigers strength coach Ryan Maidel. Enter by Friday, July 31st. That's coming up quick. So enter by Friday, July 31st. Visit MILBFanLounge.com for more details. Wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show. Before we go, Sam has this week's nationwide prospect fun fact. Yeah, so uh, when I was looking at MLB debuts so far, uh, I wanted to keep an eye on you know, who, who's getting the most playing time and things like that. So, uh, so far, as of Wednesday, you know, we know that this number is going to grow by one by tonight by the time you guys hear this. But prior to Wednesday's games – there have been 56 players to make their MLB debut already. That's pretty incredible. That seems high to me, but that's, that's pretty neat. There have been only five players to play in all five of their games so far. Uh, so those are Luis Robert, no surprise. Yoti Tsutsugo of the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Evan White, who we've discussed before. Shogo Akiyama. And Andres Jimenez of the New York Mets, top 100 prospect. Andres Jimenez has mostly come in as a defensive replacement um, for Robinson Cano. That's, that's why they added him to the roster. His defense is really good. Uh, but to see him get in all five games so far is pretty special for the Mets. We'll see what happens with him, especially as rosters slim down. I feel like he's somebody who could get elsewhere. But um, for being such a young talent, 
for already getting this major league look to be around the team and for them to trust him enough to continually get him playing time, even if it's a couple innings here and there, is interesting to me. So those are the five players so far to feature in all five of their major league baseball uh, games so far in the 2020 season. And that will do it for this week's episode of the show. Big thanks, everybody, for joining us. And uh, take a a moment and just uh, pause and wish all of your good thoughts to the Buffalo Bisons because they've got a long uh, 10 days ahead of them before they host Major League Baseball for the first time. An exciting 10 days, but, man, that is going to be a lot of work. Uh, It was kind of interesting, you know, reading up on some news articles and stuff like that. Basically, the day it was announced, uh, there was a, a press conference in which our guest this week, Mike, said, uh, yeah, they're pretty much starting work tonight. <laughs> and so it'll be uh, an interesting few days uh, for Buffalo. And obviously uh, we wish the, the Blue Jays all the best in getting set up in a minor league park to get this 2020 season, uh, their home portion of it uh, off and running. That'll be on August 11th, their first game in Buffalo. So big thanks to everybody who joined the show this week. And for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.